Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, March 31st, 2023. In this week's episode, new evidence reveals an internal affairs investigation regarding an officer involved in the Brian Koberger, Idaho murders case. Also, we considered the ski crash heard around the world as the jury rules in favor of Gwyneth Paltrow following a $300,000 civil suit. But first, in a surprising twist, Adnan Syed's conviction has been reinstated by an appellate court six months after he was made a free man. Today, we are excited to be joined by Bernarda Villalona, a criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor. Bernarda is also a legal analyst who can catch on Court TV, MSNBC, and CNN, among many other outlets. Bernarda, welcome. Hi, I'm glad to be here. (laughs) We're glad to have you. Uh, I know you've got vast experience and you've been following these cases closely, so we're curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, But before we jump in, tell us a little bit about your background and what your current practice is. Well, I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My family's from the Dominican Republic. I've been practicing law since 2004. I started out as a prosecutor in Philadelphia for three years. Then I moved back home to Brooklyn, and I was a prosecutor in Brooklyn for 13 years, where I prosecuted homicides for 10 of those 13 years. After that, I left that, and I've been a criminal defense attorney for the last three years. I represent the Correctional Officers Union, and I also do criminal defense and uh, criminal defense in terms of state and federal practice as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, like I said, we are going to call upon that vast experience of yours uh, to get into these cases. So let's jump right in. First, out of Baltimore, Maryland, nearly six months after his conviction was vacated, an appellate court has ruled in favor of reinstating Adnan Syed's conviction. Syed was convicted of the 1999 murder of his former girlfriend, Hei Min Lee, and served over 20 years behind bars. His case was famously the subject of the first season of the Serial podcast, and again made headlines in September when a Baltimore judge made the decision to vacate the conviction after a motion brought by the Baltimore State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby. The decision was based in part on the discovery that material from the state's investigation was not properly turned over to Syed's 
uh, defense at the time of his trial, as well as two additional suspects in the, to the killings who may have been improperly cleared of involvement in the murder. This week, the Maryland Appellate Court, however, made the decision to reinstate Syed's conviction based on improper hear, uh, an improper hearing to vacate made by the lower court. The court stated, a new legally compliant and transparent hearing on the motion to vacate shall be held in which Mr. Lee, who is the victim's brother, is given notice of the hearing that is sufficient to allow him to attend in person and evidence supporting the motion to vacate is presented. A second hearing to determine the status of Syed's conviction will be held at a later date and he will remain a free man for the time being. Uh, Bernarda, jump right in. What was your reaction to this development? So I was surprised that they actually reversed it and they reinstated the conviction based on the technicality. And the reason I was surprised is because Mr. Lee did have the opportunity to be present. He was present there virtually. And especially, you know, Josh, that ever since COVID, a lot of hearings have been taking place virtually where it's not even in person. So it wasn't anything that was out of the ordinary. And also, in addition to that is also much more convenient. So I was surprised that the conviction was reinstated, but just know that it's just a technicality. So when this hearing does take place and Mr. Lee has the opportunity to be present in court, I presume that the same outcome is going to take place where the conviction is going to be vacated and the case is going to be dropped. Yeah, I, I want to get into that uh, with you later about, you know, how much of this is just kind of a formality here. But my, my other question was, you know, I remember when this took place and it did seem to kind of be a real rush to get this done. And I remember at the time that the victim's family was kind of um, causing a, a fuss about it. They said that they weren't given a proper opportunity. And I wonder, do you think that the DA at the time, the state's attorney at the time, she's no longer the state's attorney there, but at the time, maybe just could have taken a breath and said, okay, fine, if we're going to do this, we realize what a, what a huge decision is being made here, how it's going to affect many other people's lives aside from Mr. Syed's. Let's go ahead and take our time and do this the right way. Do you think in retrospect, that might've been the better path? So Josh, there's a lot of conflicting statements, conflicting statements by Ms. Lee's family, as well as from the state's attorney. And just for full, uh, full transparency, I went to law school with Marilyn Mosby. So uh, we, oh. we are familiar with each other. We are cool. Okay, good. She, she is a friend of mine. But aside from that, I have investigated cases like this where we have overturned convictions during my time while I was at the DA's office. Mm -hmm. And one of the priorities is that you don't want to sit on a case that you want to reverse and vacate the conviction because each day that passes by, that's another day where that person who's been wrongfully convicted is still suffering from that same wrongful conviction. So that's why you want to move fast with that. My understanding is that State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby did contact the family and actually through the family's attorney, but the family's attorney was being combative in the sense of didn't want to cooperate with the state's attorney's office because they didn't agree with the findings of the state attorney's office. So in terms of the investigation itself, this is not something that took place in a matter of days or weeks. That case was being investigated for months and that final decision was made after they evaluated all the evidence. And also the crucial thing that came out of this is that there was a huge 
violation of statements that were not turned over to the defense at the time of trial. Now, you know that from being a prosecutor, that that right there is grounds for any conviction to be overturned, especially since you know that the person did not have a fair trial and didn't have the evidence that would have exculpated them in the sense of that they had evidence that someone else could have committed this crime. Yeah, excellent point. And that's something we're going to get into a little bit further in one of the other cases we're going to talk about today. Um, but to get back to this, I, I agree with you. You're, you're right. If you realize that you have somebody who has is improperly convicted, put it that way. There, no one, and, and it's important, I think, to draw the distinction here. No one is saying they now believe him to be innocent. Exactly. That's a huge that, distinction. Right. What they're saying is they don't do not believe that they followed the law um, or gave his defense at the time a, a proper opportunity to defend him, and which are no small things. And so I think if you feel that that has been done, absolutely the DA's office, it's incumbent upon them to do something about that and not to wait a minute longer if they feel like they have somebody who's improperly in prison um, being held there. Um, my question, though, is... You made the point that this is probably a formality. They'll go back into court. The victim's family will have an opportunity to be heard. But nothing has really changed since the time of the original decision till now that you would expect them to have a different outcome. But do you think, knowing that, the appellate court, is this perhaps a signal from them on their part that they don't agree with the decision? And this is just kind of their first... Uh, foray into this case and the decision that was made um, saying that, you know, listen, you got to do this properly to begin with, and then we're going to take another look at it. I think that played a role in it. You got to think that this appellate court is the same appellate court that also after it was ordered for a new trial, they overturned the decision for a new trial and let the convict conviction stand. So we're dealing with the same court. I'm not sure if we're dealing with the same judges, though. So that played a role. But I also think that the appellate court wanted to send a message, send a message to the world in the sense of the importance of victims' rights. And one of the important rights that a victim has and a family has is to be present and made aware of any crucial decision-making during a trial. And you definitely know the vacating of a conviction is a crucial decision in a trial. So they're supposed to be let know if there's any uh, plea negotiations uh, in terms of major decisions in a trial. And this one was a major one. And the appellate court wanted to make that known to everyone that we have to be mindful of the victim's rights. There's a victim's right bill in uh, Maryland, as it is here in New York and several other states all around the country. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it's an important point to be made. Uh, last question on this. So the podcast Serial, which really was huge at the time, I remember listening to it, and it, yes. it really did kind of change the game as far as, you know, there were true crime podcasts around before then, but this one really uh, did this kind of look back at a case that we've now seen several times uh, since then with other podcasts, taking a look at different cases at Kristen Smart. Uh, that murder mm -hmm. investigation was kind of reopened in part because of a podcast that followed it. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? I've been asked this question myself, and I'm not quite sure um, where I land on all of it. Do you think it's a good thing that these um, podcasts or other kind of media outlets really shed light on these cases and 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 ask for a new look at some of them and can that put undue pressure, I guess is my question, on the prosecutors 
in these types of cases um, merely because of the attention it's getting from something like a podcast. But that's it right there, Josh. When it comes to placing pressure on the district attorney's office or even on government officials to do something, it's the pressure from the media. That's what makes them act. You know, when it's hard for them to actually, they need a little nudge to do something or to bring it to the forefront, put it on their table in order to focus on it. And that's exactly what the podcast serial did. Because aside from the podcast, it led to a series being produced. I believe the series was on HBO and other shows that started focusing on this and it brought attention. Attention led to a movement. A movement led to that movement putting pressure on the district attorney's office to be like, I need you to take another look at this. Especially when you're dealing a case that's now been closed because yeah. you got to think a prosecutor can easily say, look, someone already decided that case and made a decision and a jury after hearing all the evidence found this person guilty. And that was even before my time, before I was a prosecutor. So I don't have to look into it. It's been closed and you've exhausted all your appellate uh, procedures. So there's nothing more to do. So it took that pressure for yeah. the state's attorney to be like, okay, maybe this is a case now that I'm listening and hearing things about it, things that doesn't sound right, that I should look into it. Because in the end, the role of a prosecutor is to seek justice and not merely conviction. But that just goes to show you, Joshua, the power of podcasts, the power of media these days, because that's not the only case that resulted in being reopening or an arrest being taken place. Because you got to think, for example, R. Kelly, surviving R. Kelly, what led the Eastern District of New York to prosecute R. Kelly, it was that series. So that's yeah. just a prime example right there. Same thing with dealing with Jeffrey Epstein and also Ghislaine Maxwell. It was series having to deal with TV series and podcast series that led the pressure for law enforcement to act. You're right. You're absolutely right. Excellent points. And, and, and you and I both know, too, you make such a good point. When a case is closed and done, and you weren't even the prosecutor assigned to it, mm -hmm. may not have even been hired by the office by the time this was all taken care of. It's so easy to say, listen, what, what do you want me to do? This has already been handled. The, the jury took a look at it. Judges were involved. What, you know, why are we going to kick up the dust on this old case? It's that inertia that you're dealing with of trying to get a bureaucracy like a DA's office to take another look. And I agree with you. To to there's nothing wrong in shedding light, and there's nothing wrong in 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 lighting a little fire, um, because prosecutors, you're right, their job to do the right thing doesn't just end upon a guilty conviction. Um, mm -hmm. So, anyways, let's take a look at another case that involves uh, prosecutors' obligations. We're moving to um, Moscow, Idaho, where attorneys for mm. Brian Koberger received details of an internal affairs investigation, which concerns one of the officers who responded to the Idaho murder scene. Koberger stands accused of the murders of four college students in a case that shocked the small community and captivated the media. Prosecutors in the case informed the judge that they would be disclosing the potential Brady Jiglio material to Koberger's defense earlier this week. While the information will remain under a protective order withholding, uh, withholding details from the public, the evidence reportedly involves one of the officers involved in the investigation following the murders. It is not known the severity of the infraction committed by the officer, but prosecutors are required to share any information that could damage the integrity of a witness, as well as information that pr may prove the defendant's innocence. Koberger, who waived his right to a speedy trial, is expected to be back in court the week of June 26th for a preliminary hearing. Um, 
could you describe for listeners and viewers, first of all, what is this Brady or Giglio material that we're talking about? And why is it so important for prosecutors to turn this type of evidence over? So this is crucial for prosecutors to turn this type of evidence over. So according to the Constitution, everyone has a constitutional right, of course, to a fair and impartial trial. So as a part of that, there was a decision, uh, Brady, that was under the U.S. Supreme Court, where it requires that if there's any exculpatory evidence that can lead to the innocence or give any inference of innocence of the defendant, the person that's been charged, then it must be turned over. If it is not turned over and there's a trial and there's a conviction, then that conviction can be overturned. And that case can either be one dismissed with prejudice where the prosecutor won't be allowed to prosecute that case again. And that depends on the judge, whether they want to give such a strong holding on that type of case or the conviction can be vacated and a new trial be ordered. So like I said before, in terms of a prosecutor, their job is to seek justice and not mere conviction. So in doing that, they have to make sure that what they're doing is fair, fundamental fairness in any criminal justice process. And in doing that, if you have information that can exculpate a person, you must turn that over as soon as you find out about that information. You can't sit on it for months or wait until the trial happens. Secondly, in terms of Giglio, if you have information that goes to the credibility of a witness that's key to the investigation or to the trial or that will be testifying at trial, you must turn that over as well. Because anything that goes towards the credibility, the negative credibility of a witness goes to the heart of the matter as well, because a jury is supposed to evaluate the credibility and the believability of a witness. The defense attorneys usually, majority of times, don't have access to this information because it's the prosecutor that's done the investigation and has all these documents. So they don't know what they don't know. And that's why it's the duty of the prosecutor to turn that over so the defense can form a defense and effectively represent their client. So well said. So well put. Um, just just to dovetail off of those thoughts, for listeners to appreciate too, the prosecutor is the steward of the evidence the the defense mm -hmm. is at a disadvantage in that most of if not all of the evidence they're ever going to get in a case has to be handed to them by the prosecutor and so what these cases stand for is that the prosecution doesn't get to decide what they feel is important for the defense exactly. to have or not that the defense needs to have the opportunity to decide for themselves what is valuable information? And they may be taking a look at this evidence that the prosecution found to be innocuous and say, no, this this is valuable to us to some extent. So that includes what is outright exculpatory evidence, but even evidence that the prosecution may not feel is all that important to their case, but may be important to the defendant's case. And so it's incumbent upon them to be as forthcoming with all of that evidence as possible to give the uh, defense a, a fair opportunity to defend themselves. That being said, it's also important, and this is for listeners to understand, that that doesn't mean all of that evidence can be used. Yes. A lot of this can be turned over to the defense, and they might want to use it, and because of evidentiary hearings, a, much, a judge may say, no, we're not going to allow you to get into that. And that's a lot of times what happens with this, uh, this so-called Brady evidence as it relates to officers, is that officers have a file on them. Many prosecutors' offices keep what's called a Brady unit. I know in, in Los Angeles they have a very robust Brady unit that basically 
keeps any and all kind of complaints ever lodged against an officer so they can turn that over to the defense if that officer is going to be a potential witness in a case. But that doesn't mean that all of that is going to come into that case, even if that officer testifies. But what it can do is, and I think we might see this in the Koberger case, and that's what I want to ask you, is it might um, might cause the prosecution to not bring that officer to the stand. If there is something in this officer, that apparently there was something in this officer's file that needed to be turned over to the defense. And if that's um, impactful enough, and if that could cause enough uh, problems on impeachment and cross-examination, they might just not even call that officer, which could present problems for the prosecution, usually the way they solve it. Don't you agree? Do you think that's the way it might even play out in this case? Exactly. It depends. So usually the majority of the time, officers, when they respond to locations or when they act doing an investigation, they act along with another officer. So it's possible what the prosecutor can do is say, I'm not going to call this officer because this officer has huge issues. But instead, I'll call the partner or the person that was with that officer who can testify after the same events that this officer could have done. But it all depends. What is the issue? And two, what is it exactly that this officer, investigator, detective, because we're really not quite sure, what is the allegations in that person's file? Either way, you have still some issues at trial where a judge may say, I'm going to give a missing witness charge, meaning that you're not calling this officer or this witness because whatever they say can have some adverse adverse inference as to your case. So there's a lot that can come out of it, but this is not crucial and it's not fatal to this prosecution because there's so much other evidence in this case that I think will still lead to the guilt of Mr. Kohlberger. Remember, the way that we got here is that still his DNA was found on the sheath of the alleged knife that was used during the stabbings of these four students. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this whole case is... is really performing a circus act around that one pivotal point that you point out that there his dna is found at that scene and there's a bunch of other stuff that connects him but the dna on that sheath on that knife is just the the most crucial piece of evidence in this thing that we know of so far as far as what we've learned what's been released uh, to the public um and and just to kind of close out this point for people to understand what we're talking about is there could be something in his file where it's alleged he was rude to someone in the past, to somebody he was investigating, or that he, uh, you know, didn't didn't respond uh, as quickly to a a scene as might be expected. Something really innocuous, or it could be he's been accused of planting evidence before, or mm-hmm. he's been accused of 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 of. Uh, you know, misreporting something in a report, something that uh, very important in the way he compiled a police report. If it's those big of a things, big problem for the prosecution. Mm-hmm. If it's something innocuous, you might you might not even expect it to be uh, play any kind of role. But my last question on this is that we're this case. Anytime anything happens in this case, and this this type of a ruling here, that or not even a ruling, this type of turning over of Brady evidence happens all the time, every single day, and in thousands of criminal cases across the country, and it never makes a blip on the news. But all of a sudden, you've got all these media outlets reporting on the fact that this has happened in this case, and it's because of the incredible scrutiny it's under. Give me your thoughts on that, on how do you think that plays any role in this case? Will it benefit the defense, benefit the prosecution, or neither? What are your thoughts? I don't think it's going to, 
I don't think it's going to affect neither party. And I believe there's a gag order in this case where the mm -hmm. prosecutor is not allowed to make statements about this case, nor is the defense allowed to make statements about this case. So you're really not going to get a response or a let me frame the narrative from either side. So that's why I don't think it's going to affect the case at all. You also got to think that a reason why the judge wants it this way, because they want to preserve the integrity of this trial, meaning they don't want to taint the jury pool. So by putting information out there and allowing attorneys to give arguments, it taints, it's a possibility that it can taint the jury pool in the sense that you can't get a fair and impartial jury to try Mr. Kohlberger in that specific county. So I don't think it's much to do of anything. The reason why we're so interested is because Jesus, four students were killed inside of their home. It's just yeah. crazy about what happened. And because we're not getting much information at all about it. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Now the story, the story itself is just nightmare fuel. It, it, it just is so, the more you think about these people being stabbed to death in the middle of the night while they're sleeping, you can understand mm. the kind of hysteria for information that is continuing to follow it. But I, I, you hinted at something, and I'm going to uh, make a project, uh, prediction now. I think there is going to be a change of venue in this case. I, I don't know how they can. It, it's such a small community, such a tight-knit mm -hmm. community. I don't see how the defense, um, I think the defense can make a very strong argument that they're not going to get some fair and impartial jurors out of that community, and they might just have to move it. doesn't mean out of Idaho. might just mm -hmm. mean to a, to a different area where it hasn't had such an impact on that local community. But we will continue to watch it, uh, obviously, and keep a close eye. Turning to our last case, big news out of Park City, Utah. After a civil trial for a ski slope collision, Gwyneth Paltrow has been found 100% not at fault for a 2016 crash. Um, Paltrow was sued by retired optometrist Terry Sanderson for $300,000, alleging that the actress slammed into Sanderson, leaving him with broken ribs and allegedly brain damage that had lasting effects on his daily life. Paltrow denied any wrongdoing in the accident and launched her own countersuit against Sanderson for a single dollar, plus her legal fees. Sanderson and Paltrow had differing accounts of how the accident occurred, with Paltrow claiming Sanderson was uphill of Paltrow and ran into her back, even apologizing before the skiers were separated. Uh, Sanderson, for his part, claimed that he heard a blood-curdling scream before he was hit by the actress and that his relationships and life were completely altered by the accident. We have uh, some footage of their respective testimonies in court. It's very entertaining. We'll play some of that for you now. And two skis came between my skis, forcing my legs apart, and then there was a body pressing against me and there was a very strange grunting noise. I said, you skied directly into my effing back. And he said, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. I just remember everything was great. And then I heard something I've never heard at a ski resort. And that was a blood curdling scream. Just, I can't do it. It was, and then boom. And it was like somebody was out of control and going to hit a tree and was going to die. And that's what I had until I was hit. The jury just took over two hours to deliberate before ultimately a finding in favor of Paltrow. Um, Bernardo, first of all, were you surprised by this outcome? I know you've been following this case. 
Not at all. I was not surprised by this verdict. So Miss Paltrow came out a winner. So they say all you need is a dollar in a dream, and here you got a dollar in a verdict in your <laughs> favor. Especially when it says that you that Mr. Sanderson was one hundred percent responsible for this. So Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow had no type of liability. She did not cause this at all. It was all Mr. Sanderson. So I wasn't surprised because it was poor lawyering. But the question for the jury was like, which poor lawyering was better than the other poor lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that you make an important point in a civil case we talk a lot about, a cr about criminal cases on here which are winner take all but in a civil mm -hmm. case you can have split liability they could have come out and said you know we find uh sanderson 70 percent liable and and paltrow 30 percent liable but they didn't they came out and said 100 percent it was his fault so she wins the whole thing all all of a dollar plus legal expenses by the way which i'm sure are not cheap but mm -hmm. you you think this case, and that's what was going to be my next question, was to me, the whole case came down to credibility. But you think even the lawyering played a role in this. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. So, yes, cases come down to credibility, credibility of the witnesses, but also, you know what, credibilities and styles of the attorneys, of your advocates, of the person that is selling this story to this jury. And I have to say that this uh, lawyering from both sides were subpar. I was not impressed at all. I mean, maybe they do things different in Utah, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm just a New Yorker. I've tried hundreds of cases. This is what I do. I live in the courtroom and I love it. And I love watching trials. But no, the lawyer was horrible. There's so many things that happened during the trial that I was like, that would not happen in a criminal case. That wouldn't be allowed in a criminal case. And that type of action and banter inside of the courtroom would not be acceptable in the cases and the courtrooms that I, I, I practice in. Yeah, it, some of it was difficult to watch. It was a little oh, cringe yes. especially the cross-examination by mm. the plaintiff's attorney of Paltrow, uh, this female attorney. It, You know, you can understand um, wanting to create uh, a at least the appearance of friendliness sometimes. That that might be a tactic, right? You don't, Maybe you don't want to come out of the gate so hard and going straight for the jugular on, on a witness. And so you could understand why they might want to present themselves to being friendly to the person they're about to cross-examine. But this looked like celebrity worship to me at points. I mean, it just became so obvious that they were kind of starstruck to have this celebrity in court that she was getting the opportunity to chat with it felt like they were at brunch together rather than sitting in a courtroom. And I don't think that sat well with the jurors. Now, obviously, I can say that now that they've given her a, the complete verdict. But what are your you, you made the point, but kind of continue to expound on that. How can a, a, a lawyer's demeanor affect the jurors? Even not even the questions coming out of their mouth, just their demeanor huge because she lost credibility it's like how can i take this woman seriously i don't know no what's going on in this courtroom do you have a woman crush on miss paltrow what you're worshiping <laughs> her is she your friend do you know each other do you have problems with her from before did y'all meet before i just couldn't figure it out it was just so weird i mean at what point she was like please tell me i'm as tall as you please tell me it's like <laughs> i'm beautiful like you and i'm like it was so one-sided too yeah. <laughs> it would have been different if gwyneth paltrow was entertained this but she was like she was even weirded out you saw yeah. about her face but there was a catty moment josh and that catty moment women we know 
when Gwyneth Paltrow said, I'm sorry, what, what's your name again? <laughs> <laughs> when she asked her attorney her name after sitting in that courtroom for what, two weeks or so, and also being examined by her for, I think, almost an hour, and then she asked her name, it was almost like, oh, who are you? I don't yeah. respect you. Like, it was so catty. I thought that was a big moment right there. Yeah. But I think that she lost credibility, that attorney lost credibility because I couldn't trust you and I didn't have confidence in you. And if I don't have confidence in you and I don't respect you, then I, I can't be receptive to what you're trying to sell me. And that's sell the jury, what you're trying to sell the jury. So I think that's why it worked against uh, the plaintiff. Uh, I think her actions in the courtroom. Yeah. Yeah, she, Paltrow was just a, a moment away from asking her to go grab a latte for her. It was it was, <laughs> it was bizarre moments in court. Last question on this. A lot of people have asked this. Why did Paltrow put herself through this? $300,000, a lot of money to you or I. To Paltrow, not so much. She could have gotten rid of this whole case. It seems. I don't know how much insurance companies played a role in forcing them all into court. But it seems as though she could have made this whole thing go away. And recently, she she released a statement on Instagram where she it, she made it she made it sound like this was her putting her foot down. That's and right. Saying I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take responsibility mm -hmm. for something I didn't do. What are your thoughts? You think that this was about her credibility, or were there other um, players that we may not know about that that uh, caused this case to end up in court? So I think a couple of things played a role. Aside from the insurance, how they played a role, I'm going to put that aside. And I think for no. Gwyneth Paltrow, what it was, it was principle. Principle of the sense of, number one, this occurred with her kids present, with her kids there on vacation. So it's like, Good what point. message do you want to send to your kids that, you know, you can have someone lie about you and try to take advantage of you and, and sue you for money for something that didn't happen? Like, you need to take a stand when you did something wrong. So I think it was principle in the sense of for the family and for the kids. But also, secondly, that she knows her position. She knows that she is a celebrity and she's a wealthy celebrity. So she She's like, I need to send a message that I'm not just going to allow anybody to come sue me and I'm just going to fall for it and just here's the money and I'll just settle. At some point, this has to stop and I'm going to make it stop by sending that message with a publicized trial and now with a win that I will fight, I will be present and I will win. And that's the message that she sent. And then third, of course, principle for herself, for herself in the sense of she knew that she did not do this and she wanted to fight it and see it through from the very beginning to the end. But I just also have to add a fourth a fourth aspect to it is that remember Terry Sanderson had given an interview and and pretty much had Paltrow that King Kong came from behind and took me down. <laughs> so I think it's the words, the words that Sanderson was using to describe Gwyneth Paltrow. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna We're fight gonna... this, but I'm gonna fight this in court. We're gonna we're gonna clear this up, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Well, it was one of those cases that just kind of seem to fill the void of people's continued interest in these courtroom dramas. So um, it, it, whether or not it was a good uh, use of all of our times, we'll, we'll put that question <laughs> aside, but it was certainly interesting to watch. Uh, Bernardo, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure being on your show. So you can follow me on social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, 
at Bialona Law. So at Bialona Law. Or you can also go on my website, which is BialonaLaw.com. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. Please check out my website, joshuaritter.com. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you again for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.